Part of a writer's job is to read. It fills the tank, expands our empathy, teaches us new ways of envisioning the world and ourselves. The Outrider podcast presents Have You Read This? An ongoing miniseries project where we read and discuss those books we feel that, because we're writers, we probably should have read by now. So, Please join me and my intrepid co-host, Delia Tramontina, as we dive into another book from our endless list of unread classics. In this series, we discuss Juna Barnes' Nightwood. So get your glass of wine and get comfortable. Okay, so here we are, our second half of, of Nightwood. I did look online for things right before this, um, just to kind of catch, like, look at to see what people are saying in the summaries and stuff. Yeah, there's there's no spark notes. There's no cliff notes for it. There's a litcharts.com site for it. There's also, where am I here? Oh, that's what I'm looking at. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And... And then there's the, the the Wikipedia summary of the whole thing, which, which is like a paragraph long. No, mine had mine had a lot of stuff on there. Oh, really? Yeah, pretty oh, much okay. broke down each section. Um, no, of course, I didn't look at anything until I got done reading. Mm-hmm. And I actually went and made a list at one point of things that, having read the book. Mm-hmm. And then read that summary on lit charts. I realized that I had missed completely in the book. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. I was just looking at that. I'm like, really? Yeah. And you know, I guess before we we talk about the the chapters in, you know, piece by piece, what kind of happens in there, and and if we want to do that, or there's a couple of things that the couple of thoughts that I had, mm-hmm. and the first one was to. You know, to, well, I guess in a way, both of them are kind of, you know, about my shortcomings as a reader. So my first thought was that, you know, perhaps there is a, a feel or a perception to language that has been lost since this book was written, mm-hmm. right? That the, the digressions and the illusions and all of that stuff that, that the characters throw out there. Are are just going over my head because I don't have the uh, uh, the language skills because of TV and the internet and you know smartphones and you know growing up when I did and where I did compared to someone who you know spent a great deal a good deal of her life growing up without even radio, right? Mm-hmm. Being what eighteen ninety something she was born. Right. So radio wasn't really a thing. Mm-hmm. Broadcast radio wasn't really something until the uh, until, you know, just around World War One. You know, so they did read more. There was more of an engagement with language among the those who were literate. Right. So maybe there is a, a way of. A relationship to language that she had that I've lost completely, and that therefore makes this kind of a challenge for me beyond similar to what it was with with Joyce, right? That he's just so deep into into you know the nuances of language in a way that 
it doesn't translate to now for me. And that's because mm-hmm. I'm, and because I'm stupid. But then again, maybe it's not that. Maybe my other thought is that maybe the problem is that as a straight man, I've never had to use language in a way to obfuscate my intentions the mm-hmm. way that someone in the LGBTQ community would have done, especially in that era that Juno mm-hmm. Barnes was living in. I didn't, so never having had to code my language a certain way. A lot of this is just going over my head. Those are my two mm-hmm. thoughts on on why I struggled so much with this with this book. Mm-hmm. Did you struggle in the, with the whole thing, or just? So I feel that I struggled the most with the doctor. Mm, yeah, who takes up a lot of space in the book. And it's funny because I was talking, I was talking to a friend of mine today who has read this and she asked me what I thought of it. And my reaction, which I remember having with Ulysses, and I compared it to when I was doing Poet is Radio, mm-hmm. we had a guest who wanted to talk about one of the Greek tragedies. It might have been the Odyssey, I forget. And he had asked us before we read it what our hesitancy would might be or our apprehension about going into this work. And what I'd said at the time was, which is still true, is that I read this work, right? And, you know, the basic idea of these stories is, you know, you do something and the gods get mad, mad at you and they punish you and then there's a war and, you know, and you have right. to carry dead people, whatever. Um, that there is a moral code and consequence and emotional contact that I can't relate to, right? That there is the, um, like the way people react to things don't make sense to me Mm -hmm. in my, right? And I had a similar reaction here, which was that obviously this isn't a Greek tragedy and it takes place a lot later, but, um, there is an emotional content to this that distances me. Uh-huh. Right. So right. I so I finished reading the book like earlier this week, and then I was just looking at the synopsis now, and I was reminded of the end, which is Robin on all fours acting like a dog. Right. On a concrete level, I don't know why she's doing that. I mean, <laughs> I take that to be symbolic. Right. right. It's symbolic, but it's happening. Right. In a novel, mm-hmm. which has a, narr- a narrative. Right. And so there's a lot of like emotional content in here. Like, why is the doctor freaking out? Like he's hysterical and then he's drunk. Right. Right. Um, everybody keeps coming to him and asking him about Robin. Mm-hmm. And he gets fed up with it. And that's why he gets drunk, because he's tired of being everybody's, you know, therapist. It sounds more, he sounds more upset <laughs> than that. Oh, so and, he was. And, and not for nothing, if he was that bummed out about it, you would think he'd be a lot, a lot less long-winded. I mean, he, it's, it is, I, I imagine him as someone who like, you ask him like what, you know, how to catch the bus and he gets on a friggin' stage and like puts on 
you know, costumes to like, you know, <laughs> mime it and shit, you know, um, this is not someone who's trying to not get. He's a drama queen. Let's <laughs> just say it. He's a drama queen. It, well, and the thing is, I would looked him up because I because finally I'm just like he's transgender. They don't. Um, and then I finally found something that I looked up his them. They said they he would be he might be someone who'd be consider himself transgender these days, right? Yeah. They referred him diff, to him differently back then. Mm-hmm. So it's so weird because he's like in a way not a main character, but I feel like he has more page space in this book than anybody. Oh yeah. He takes up a lot of real estate. And it is because people are going to him and asking him questions and then he's saying stuff. And I, I don't, and that's the part where I got lost a lot of times was with him. They were, they were like, I have question marks next to like parts that he's talking about. Right. Sometimes I at least know what he's saying. And there are other times I'm like, I have no idea what this, what this is referring to. So I think that is the distancing part is that for instance, that I'm going to crawl around like a dog at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, there's something almost for lack of a better word, fanciful about that. Like there's some, right. There's something not magical, but like, if there was a book of things like that, I'd be like, oh, this is a this is a different type of novel, mm-hmm. right? But yeah, there's just an emo- um, emotional world I don't get. Like, I don't know why everybody's in love with Robin. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. There's There's no explanation to me of like why everybody's losing their shit over this woman. Right, right. <laughs> you know? Um, and why the doctor is the person everybody's going to. Apparently, they, she, he says at, at the be- first half of the book, he says, I delivered her, so I know about her, mm-hmm. which makes no sense. Yeah, and I um, thought that was a and, re- reference to Nora, though, wasn't it, from the notes? Oh, was it? Yeah. Um, maybe you're right. Uh, I probably have it marked somewhere. But still, everybody's everybody's going to him. And then actually... As I was reading, and I didn't realize this, as I was reading the the summary, they say that he's actually not a real doctor, which was not something I picked up from the book. There are times when he, where she yeah. says, he, so Nora and him are having a conversation. She says, people have been talking about you. And he says, what do they say? And they say, you're going around and getting fit, free meals and doing something like she says, they're talking about you as if you're being kind of duplicitous. Right. But I don't remember hearing or getting understanding that he's not a real doctor. I think at some point though, he admits it to Felix as if I remember right. Cause I mm-hmm. did, I did know kind of right off the bat that he's not supposed to be, but maybe I read that in some summary or something somewhere. Okay. I don't remember. Cause well, it's kind of hard. missed it. Yeah. No, in fact, <laughs> I was, I was there, I was, I felt at some point so baffled that when I read in the summary that Nora at the beginning of Watchmen, One of the Night shows up at 3 a.m. And I went, did I miss that? And of course, it's the first part of the sentence at three in the morning. She shows up. I was like, oh, oh I did read it. up to the doctor's house. Yeah. At three, about yeah. three in the morning. And I thought, oh, it was that. That was the one thing that was clear. And I was so confused by the end of the book. I thought, well, did I miss that? <laughs> I've done that too, where I'm just like, 
I'm like, but, and, and I did a thing because I wrote all in this book because I write in the books that you and I read together. Yep, and um, I will a lot of times underline where things are placed. So my eye will go to that. Like they're in this place. They went right. Just the concrete details. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times my eye goes over it because I'm trying to like figure out the content. So like I did that too. I'm just like, oh yeah, they're in a cafe. Totally missed, you know, even though right. that is, there are certain things that are very clear. Yeah, no, that was, it's, and there it's, when, when she does become, when, when Barnes does become clear in her prose, it's almost shocking, right? When she's clearly said that mm-hmm. this is what they're doing. This is where they're sitting. This is how they look. It's like, what? We yeah. suddenly. You're like, you know, that's not what you do. <laughs> that's not what you do. The door just slammed <laughs> shut on the weirdness. I mean, what went wrong there? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I want. And I, I wanted and I still want to like this book, but yeah, it's, it's resisting. So, okay, so now, I'm resisting it or it's you're, resisting you're me. You're feeling resistant. So, okay. So there is, this is interesting. So you're talking about the coded language. So I, I'm looking now at the little parts where I have question marks next to things where I'm just like, what the hell are you talking about? There was a whole part where he talks about the difference between the way the French and the Americans see daytime and nighttime. Right. Yeah. I, I, I was struggling. Like I didn't know what he was saying, but, you know. Yeah. I was struggling with the whole conversation, why the word night and, and day and all this was so important in that, mm-hmm. in Watchmen, What of the Night? And my, I think at one, one point I scribbled next to it because he was, all I wrote was death question mark. I mean, is oh, that, okay. are they trying, is night supposed to be a metaphor for death? But no, as I was going through, you know, the lit chart and the notes, trying to m- figure out what I had missed, you know, some way to try and talk intelligently about this book. You know, the, the whole night and day argument in this section is about, you know, the duality of human nature, um, our, mm-hmm. our, or dual sidedness, you know, night is the, uh, the, uh, uh, the animal, the parts of us that we, uh, that we want to hide and daylight is the mm-hmm. thing that we present to everybody, the clarity, the, uh, the niceness, the thing that, okay. right. Now, and did you, did you come to that on your own or did you get that from something? From lit chart. It's kind of what okay. they were talking about with it. And again, then, it, and that's when it kind of like it, it locked in as to what the conversation they were having here was going okay. on is that, you know, that, uh, that Robin is this very night dwelling person. She's descending into the id. And that's kind of, I think what that mm-hmm. last chapter is when she's running around with a dog, you know, mm-hmm. there are other points in the book where particularly when, uh, when Nora and Robin first meet in, in one of the earlier chapters where they talk about it, you can compare her to an animal. She is very mm-hmm. id based. Mm-hmm. Of course, that doesn't seem like enough for everyone to be so gaga in love with her. Unless somehow mm-hmm. she's, you know, fantastic in the sack, but we don't One get it. When we don't get any of that in here, you know, I think I think to a certain point that you know it reminds me of when we when our, on our first conversation where we were talking about the intro and everything that that you know it was thought that this book would um, you know be shocking to the reading public because of its you know 
portrayal of lesbianism and it just kind of and it didn't and it didn't make any kind of a shocking splash or or didn't get any of the it didn't get in it didn't have any of the uh, um you know obscenity trials that like ulysses did or anything like that and i think it's because of the of the language she was she just everything was so obscure right well they said right like that they that she wrote about women having sex but because people being lesbians was like some kind of thing that no one thought of that they kind of went under the radar but i don't remember anybody having sex in nobody this. has sex in this book okay well, i mean i mean maybe maybe i mean maybe by extension happened, robin and felix it. did because they have a kid there's no other way to get right but we didn't we hear about it we didn't hear about it didn't read about it well yeah yeah, so I have like there's in Watchmen What of the Night, I have quite a few question marks of which is like I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah. Um but there are some lines in here that are great. Um let me see. To our friends we die every day, but to ourselves we only die at the end. Right. You know. Um this is actually really good. Were she a soldier, she would define defeat with the sentence, the enemy took the war away. Great line. Yeah. She just likes to fight no matter what. But then I have a question mark against. I've never asked better than to see the two ends of my man, no matter how I might be dwindling. Hmm. Her groin pouting as if she kept her heart in it. Yeah. That's a great line. If a pouting groin is not a, descript- not a description of the id, <laughs> I don't know what is. <laughs> what was I just watching? Oh, God, I was watching last night. I was watching The Umbrella Academy. Have you oh, been watching that yeah, on Netflix? Yeah. Where mm-hmm. she says your vagina needs glasses. Right. <laughs> yeah. Similar. <laughs> the groin's pouting. The vagina's got bad eyesight. You beat the liver out of a goose to get a pate. You pound the muscles of a man's cardia to get a philosopher. I liked that. Oh, I didn't remember that one. That is good. Right. There are also times, I'm just looking at what I kind of marked in the book, where it's interesting because I think I kind of forgot that this is a third-person narrator. Right. Because he's talking so much, right? So, like, I'm just like, oh, this is... Like I'd have it here, like, you know, the doctor was embarrassed by Nora's rigid silence and he went on. Like, I'm just like, as I was reading this, I got jolted by that because he talks, even though there's like, he's, you know, there, there are dialogue tags, right? Um, like someone, uh, coming in and describing, cause there's so much dialogue. It's like all talking mm-hmm. that like when someone actually came in and described a gesture or something, I was like, Oh, I forgot that there was actually something like a voice telling this story. Yeah. When she does drop into the concrete, it makes it a little bit clearer that it's not because so much of, of Watchmen, what of the night is just the doctor holding forth mm-hmm. on something. And, uh, and interestingly enough, it, it was another instance where I noticed that uh, Barnes as the writer, you know, who's in, who's ultimately in charge of the whole thing. Again, she becomes the most clear you know, when they start talking about Jenny again because of that yeah. spite 
everything everything becomes concrete at that point yeah that's true not just you know not just the, uh, the their actions and way they how they say it or it's about what they say about Jenny becomes much more concrete and less abstract mm-hmm. there was also the thing I mean this is again another um by the way there's also the thing where it's like does he is he referring to gay women as sodomites there's this part where he says, and do I know my sodomites? And I'm just like, is he referring to women? We're just saying, um, well, I think, I think Jenny, I think, I think from a contextual thing at particularly in this era, a sodomites was anybody gay, anybody. That uh, was kind it? Of, okay. I wasn't sure that it would be. Yeah. Not just men, but anybody. Just, yeah. You're violating, you know, God's law that tab A goes in slot A. Uh, what were we talking about? We were talking about Jenny. Yeah. Around about 107 is when they start to get back into, at least from according to, no, yeah, 106, 107, which would be right about where where the doctor starts on with sorrow fiddles the ribs and no man should put his hand on anything. There is no direct way. The fetus of symmetry nourish itself on cross purposes. What? Are you still in Watchmen? What of the night? Yep. Yeah, because that's because they get to Jenny a couple of paragraphs later, which they're very long mm-hmm. paragraphs. Oh yeah. Oh right. That's what I was going to say. That's where he was like, and Jenny the bird snatches the oats out of love's droppings. Right. She's eating shit, and I went mad. I'm like that. What an autopsy I'll make with everything all which way in my bowels. Why does he introduce Jenny to Robin? Right? That's the whole thing. Like, he thinks Jenny's horrible. He knows Nora's in love with Robin. Yeah. And he's still, and he says, I introduced them. Right. But he didn't because I, I know, I, and I'm, this was one of the things I made a list of the, of the obvious, of the things that I missed. At one point. And one of them was that at one point when I was reading this, the, uh, the summaries and the, and the analysis, Jenny and, and Robin met before the doctor introduced them at that party. Mm. So he thought he was doing something, you know, to kind of be a dick. And it turns out that they were already kind of on their thing. Yeah, he admits it. God help me. I went. You know, talking about the party, who will not mm-hmm. betray a friend or, for that matter, himself for a whiskey and soda, caviar and a warm fire. Oh, I see now. And because if we're me... talking about, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, so he he admits in Watchmen of the Night to Nora that he thought he was introducing Jenny and Robin, you know, to kind of see what would happen. But it also sounds like he was going for the food. Like if he is in fact. Getting right because they're saying yep. he's a fake doctor, but there's also a thing about what are they saying about me? They're saying you're taking meals under false pretense. So if he's someone who I don't know if he's hungry, but right. he doesn't have access to resources, and someone or, or offers him caviar. Yeah. Shall we move on to Baron Felix? Although following? I did, although I did notice now maybe maybe one of the things that Barnes was doing is because you know at the end of Watchmen. There's the there's a bit of an echo to the final chapter where he says Nora will leave that girl mm. someday, but though those two are buried at opposite ends of the earth, one dog will find them both. 
And here oh, at the end of the book, there's, there's a dog. one dog. <gasps> and it, it's the dog that, that leads Nora to the chapel where Robin yes. is. And, and Robin makes her dog pantomime. And that's how the book ends. Mm-hmm. That's a great line. Yeah, but it's not, it's, it's, it is a good line. It is a good image, but it's not enough for me to, it, it doesn't, it doesn't forgive the, uh, the obtuseness of everything else for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where the tree falls, our next section, Felix mm-hmm. and the doctor again. We're back to Felix and the doctor has to be in everything. Um, so then we get into so I think there's I got that like Felix's father was trying to hide the fact that he's Jewish and mm-hmm. Felix is kind of doing that by part like as like a thing too. Right. Um but there's a whole thing about the Pope. He wants to send a letter to the Pope, and I think it's because he yeah. wants his son to be a clergy person, I think. Yeah, there's something like that. I, son, I didn't quite son, follow it all. At some point, I lost the thread. And mm-hmm. and oddly enough, the summary and in, in lit charts on this chapter doesn't really address the Pope letter much. Mm-hmm. Other than, I mean, it kind of glosses over it. You know, it's all about, you know, Felix, you know, trying to move up and be, you know, the, the royalty that he wants to be. But that's doesn't get into the context or the... Uh, the mm-hmm. Oh, where the tree falls. I did mark one giant paragraph. Where? At the beginning? Right. Well, for me, it's, yeah, it's um, one, two, three, four, six, seven, about the eighth paragraph in. Oh, okay. From the beginning. Um, and I simply blocked it all out and I said, best passage so far. <laughs> Which, where are we? Um, So, before leaving, however, he sought out the doctor. He was not in his lodging. The baron aimlessly set off toward the square. He saw the small, black-clad figure moving toward him. The doctor had been to a funeral and was on his way to the Café de la Marie du Vie to lift his spirits. The baron was shocked to observe in the few seconds before the doctor saw him that he seemed old, older than his 50-odd years would account for. He moved slowly, as if he were dragging water. His knees, which one seldom noticed because he was usually seated, sagged. His dark, shaved chin was lowered as if in a melancholy that had no beginning or end. The baron hailed him, and instantly the doctor threw off his unobserved self as one hides hastily a secret life. He smiled, drew himself up, raised his hand in greeting, though, as is usual with people taken unaware, with a touch of defense. And I thought that was like the mm-hmm. clearest, most artistic description of, you know, somebody, you know, being caught out in public by a friend, mm-hmm. surprised, you know, in public by a friend. That was me the best damn paragraph (laughs) read in the book and i think consequently where the tree falls might have been the clearest most narratively you know that he gets he he goes to the cafe felix leaves he gets drunk this is where he gets drunk and has to be carried out by the priest or the priest offers to carry him out um no i think that i think that's after yeah i think that's after the second conversation with nora Oh, okay. All right. There's all this stuff about Guido. Yep. His Poor. concerns about him. 
poor little mentally challenged Guido. Yeah, but the the Felix and the doctor actually have a conversation here and it and it's not and the doctor doesn't wander quite as much mm-hmm. as he does with everybody else. Yeah, it was Maybe that's why I like it. It's, it's the most conventional chapter, and I'm just a conventional potato. You are a potato. <laughs> I'm a conventional potato. Okay, so here we go. The doctor reached out for the bread. So the reason for our cleanliness becomes apparent. Cleanliness is a form of apprehension. Our faulty racial memory is fathered by fear. Destiny and history are untidy. We fear memory that of that disorder. Robin did not. Now, the use of the term racial, which happens earlier in the book, too. Right. Which I thought was like a, a stand in for Christian versus Jewish. Mm-hmm. Yep. That was my impression. But I don't I don't I feel like this is that is significant. I don't quite know what's happening. Yeah, I don't know either. I think I kind of glossed over that particular small passage because I mm-hmm. just like, eh. Yeah. I had a question. Okay. It is only by such extreme measures that the average man can remember something long ago. Truly, not that he remembers, but that crime itself is the door to an ac- accumulation, a way to lay hands on the shutter of a past that is still vibrating. Hmm. It's a great it's a it's a great sentence. I just don't know what it means. Guido is is the shadow of your anxiety, and Guido's shadow is God's. There are lines that are really good that I feel like we must have read beforehand that maybe they were referenced, and this is one of them. Um, I would carry that boy's mind like a bull I picked up in the dark. Yeah, you do not know what's in it. Someone yeah. referenced that line, I think, because I was just like, oh, that looks familiar. It's a great line. That was uh, that was Miss Winterson. Oh, okay. Because there was another line we said earlier that was also in yeah. there. Yeah. Sorry, Miss Winterson, but I do not feel pearl-lined at this point. <laughs> oh, is that what she said? <laughs> yeah. Reading, yeah, she made that comment about reading Barnes was like, uh, you know, consuming something with a pearl dissolved in it and... Uh, Afterwards, oh yeah, the spit. Yeah, okay. You are. Um, everything is pearl lined. I'm like, eh, no, no. I still feel yeah. like I'm lined in mucus and snot. So go right ahead. <laughs> so okay. So Felix. <laughs> then he leaves with his kid, and they go somewhere. Yeah, they go back Here's to Vienna. Question. Why is Felix and why is Guido in this? Like, given. Well, Guido being Robin's son, it's like he's the cast off part. He's the part that he is like another one of the instances of, of Robin, you know, being this weird, you know, animal. The, the the child goes away and she's done with it. Well, she leaves the child, though. She says, I didn't want the child. And she goes, right. I think. Yeah. She goes and then and then Felix. Because. Robin's gone back to America or Paris or she's gone somewhere, just takes the child and and goes back to Vienna, back to where he, you know, feels most comfortable. And we never, you know, certainly Robin never mentions the child again. Mm-hmm. Nor does anybody else, really. 
she, I mean, the child certainly doesn't cross Nora's mind. Mm-mm. Um, does she even know about him? Yeah, I'm, I'm think she I does because she does. I would assume she does if, because that's the other thing that I did not get. You know, we sit there and we wonder why does everybody love Robin so much? I also mm-hmm. get no sense of time, how long these people are supposed to have been together. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And I know that when I read the summary and that lit charts thing, they kind of give the, they flesh out what the time frames are, but I'm like, going, where do you get that in the text? I have mm-hmm. no concept of the passage or juxtaposition yeah, right. of time. There, mm-hmm. I think that's, you know what, now that you're saying that, I think that's, that also lends to my idea of like not understanding the moral wor- world, mm-hmm. because for all I know, these people like met each other last week and now they're crying, you know, like there is, right. it's all very compressed. Yeah. Right. And there's, and there is no, there are no hints, no suggestions, no clues as to how the chronology has is being compressed or expanded at various times mm-hmm. there's location right they move to vienna they move to france right. they're in this, in this yeah. you know for all we know that you know it's it's a matter of teleportation in 1930 whatever but i don't know this i guess i I hate to be, you know, to pass judgment on something like that. Like, you know, writers should do this rah, 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 when they shouldn't. They, sh- but to me, it would add an emotional resonance to well, have time. To me, there's I. I've always had to. I've always had this idea that you should have a certain amount of respect for your reader, and so by that. What I've always thought by that is that you should give them enough clues that they can center themselves. That they have something they can hang on to so that they don't feel adrift and mm-hmm. detached from the story. You want to make sure that they've got a hook somewhere you know, to hang on to. I certainly don't like it when you know writers disrespect their reader's intelligence. I know we've probably had conversations about that a whole lot in the past, you know, um, Give me an example. Well, I, my always, my go-to is always Dan Brown because he has no fucking respect uh, for his reader's intelligence. I, I wouldn't know because I didn't read it. <laughs> but I, I, so, it, so, okay. So one of my, f- it's like shitty writing and they're well, just like, yeah, you're going to buy this. It's not just <laughs> shitty writing. It's, it's, it's. Okay, so the the easy I have two examples from from the Da Vinci Code that I always re- go to as examples of this. <clears throat> the first one is is you know there's one scene in there where this woman goes into a house where she's supposed to be looking for the bad guys, mm-hmm. and this is just an example of disrespect via lazy writing. Mm-hmm. And the woman goes in and, and, and investigates the house, and there's a, two sentences where he writes the house was entirely uninhabited. Period. Upstairs too. It's like. What part of the word entirely did you think I didn't understand? Mm-hmm. Right. Then the other one, the more complex, the more concrete example of this is that he has this character walking along the street and finds a business card on the street. And the way he writes it in the, uh, in the, in the, on the page is that he sees the white card. He picks up the white card. There's, 
he has a narrative that tells you the reader reads an address. He then recreates, you know, with spaces and paragraphs, the business card with the address on it. And then in the next line, he has in italics, signifying the character's internal thoughts, exclaim, it's an address. <laughs> right? I got it when you picked it up and said you read an address first line. You didn't have to do this shit. Right? That's, you're, you're assuming your reader is stupid. They didn't get that. They weren't able to understand that the somebody picked up a business card and read mm. an address off of the Right. Your readers cannot see your gestures of exasperation right now. It's I know. Really I'm, I'm flailing. It's it's so frustrating. Your listeners, your listeners. But you know, and that's kind of the you know, you should not beat obvious horses to to twist a you know beating a dead horse, mm -hmm. you know type of thing. But you also shouldn't be so obscure that your readers are confused or lost or thrown out of the narrative. I very much mm -hmm. subscribe to John Gardner's idea about the vivid and continuous dream. When you're writing prose, you sink them into the story. You make sure that, you know, if they are thrown out of the story, it's not because they go, huh? Or because something doesn't make sense. They get thrown out of the story. If they do get thrown out of the story, have it be because they, they stop and go, oh, uh, you know, mm -hmm. they're thrown out because of recognition, because of beauty, mm -hmm. because of of something you've said that like, oh my, yes, that is a truth of the universe type of revelation. Have that be the thing that throws them out of the story so that they stop and go, wow, and maybe go back mm -hmm. and reread it. But then they're immediately able to sink back into that world. You know, when reader, when writers insult their reader's intelligence by not trusting that they get something the first time they say it. And then readers that that don't take into account the fact that readers need clues to stay connected. They need something to ground them and stay connected. And this is something that Joyce and Juna Barnes seem to be doing, in my opinion, is that they seem to be doing this thing off over here that's kind of like masturbation. The only person they're in it for is themselves, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's alienating in a way. That's just my opinion, and I'm obviously not anybody. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's why I like that chapter where the tree falls so much, is because it is the one moment where, even though the doctor, he doesn't have quite as many, you know, sidetracks and, and as, uh, doesn't have so many asides in there, but there's the all. Yeah, the doctor. He has he has asides, but they're not as deep or as detailed as they are in like Watchmen or or. Oh, you're referring to the chapter. I thought you were referring to the character. Okay. Right. No, the doctor. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. In in that section where the tree falls, he still mm -hmm. has his sides and digressions, but they're not as detailed and mm -hmm. and confusing, and dense as they are in like Watchmen mm -hmm. or or mm -hmm. in Go Down Matthew. Right. And I think that's what it is: is that Barnes in this one chapter gave me enough things to cling to where I had a, a firm enough foundation that I could launch myself into trusting whatever it was that the character was doing or the writer mm -hmm. was trying to do. In the other chapters, it didn't work that way. I feel like I'm talking too much, but that's just because I'm alone all the time. All I have to do is talk to the cats. <laughs> oh, what do they think of this book? 
<laughs> they think there's not enough blue fish flicking. Oh, okay. Go down, Matthew. What's yeah. with the 82 plaster virgins? I have no idea. Taken to drink and appropriating Robin's mind with vulgar inaccuracy, like those 82 plaster versions she bought because Robin had one good one. When you laugh at 82 standing in a row, this I like this line, Jenny runs to the wall, back to the picture of her mother, and stands there between the two tortures, the past that she can't share and the present that she can't copy. I don't know. I have a note at the top of 123. Doctor's metaphor is unclear. Yeah, I had that reaction to the thing with the line. Think of the fish racing the sea, their love of air and water, turning them like wheels, their tails and teeth biting the water, their spines curved around the air. Is what? that in Go Down, Matthew? Yeah. Um, yeah. Into the first oh, I see. paragraph. Yes, yes, yes. Is that not Jenny, she who could not encompass anything whole, but only with her teeth and tail and the spine of her sprung up, the spine on her spine? I was like, uh, I find that, I almost find that less confusing than, oh, for God's sakes, can you rest now? <laughs> like, that's what I mean. I'm just like, what do you say? Like this kind of, like, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, like a dramaticness a drama. Right. Yeah. That I'm just like, I just want to be like, yeah, calm down. Jeez. No, it's like, um, it's in go down Matthew where I had my, my first statement where I thought it's like competing dramatic monologues from a play more than a novel. Mm -hmm. Right. The, the vernacular, the pacing, the syntax of it all is, is almost like it's, it's, it's not, as far back as Shakespeare, not as far forward as modernism. It's it's like the the poor person's interpretation of the diction of Shakespeare, and they're standing at the end of the thing, not really looking at each other, and delivering lines against each other, but they're not connected. And so the thing yes. fell, and the th and then this was over. And my stuff was on the ground. It's like, I no, I'm not connected to it. Well, I was having that reaction to two chapters ago where it's like Nora asks him a question and then he just goes off the rails. And I'm like, is right. he answering the question? I'm not sure. Yeah. It, it's it's like a combination of that dramatic monologues thing and a book of quotations on a particular topic. Mm -hmm. Right. I, you know, it's almost as if Barnes was thinking, I'll write this line so that it'll end up in a book of quotations about, you know bad love or crazy lesbians or whatever. <laughs> the archives of my case against the law snatched up and out of the tale telling files of my high important friend. No idea what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then there was this interesting thing. It was just happened a couple of pages where there was, she said colon. Did you catch that? Uh -uh. Yeah. So it's on my, 127, but it's about. Oh, was I don't that? Know. She said, I can only find her again in my sleep or in her death in both. She has forgotten. But it, but it happens twice before that. Oh. And it's the only time. She is myself. What am I to do? Mm hmm. Yeah. What will happen now to me and to her? I don't know that that's anything. Those, 
Well, I don't know. They, they, they sh- it doesn't happen anywhere else, but there is this, I mean, choose myself, what am I to do? I mean, those are like, there. there is like a very powerful longing communicated in those lines. I feel right. like right. there is a lot of emotional resonance there for me. Yeah. But it's but it's it's more that it it's it's it feels more self-reflexive than it is related to the characters because it's like right we're, we're the one providing the meaning for that line. What do you mean? Well, like we talked about earlier before, it was like we're 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 finding it hard to understand why these people love Robin so much. Yeah, and so these lines, the resonance, you know. The, Nora is speaking them about her feelings about Robin, but it's actually Mm -hmm. because at the same time that we don't understand why these people love Robin, we, we hear the words that are presented here, but since we don't have the context in the story of their relationship, we're relating those words to our own historical context Mm -hmm. in order to fill in the gaps. It's kind of like a, uh, um, a fictional version of uh, Firestone's, you know, fantasy bond. There's something missing in the text. And so we look to the words and we then fill in what's missing in the book with our own experiences, our own self-reflexive, you know, take on it. So the the longing that you're sensing in that moment when that character says that stuff is different than the longing that I'm experiencing because we're not actually experiencing the longing that the character has, but our longing in a similar situation. Does that make sense? You and I would probably, even if this was more clear in the book, we would probably have different takes in it anyway, because we're two different people. Just like last time we talked about different readers are going to, right? Right. I think what I get from this is I can understand emotionally where Nora is coming from because of the way she's describing it. I still don't understand what it is about Robin that mm-hmm. got her there. Right. So that's the part that's missing for me. However, having this in here, at least, I mean, she's talking about her and she wants to write her a letter and she's asking the doctor what happened. So we kind of know that she is heartbroken right. and misses her and what the hell happened. Um, but yeah, there's not, there's nothing of the content of their relationship that we would get it without these conversations she's having, having after she left. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and in that same section, the doctor has this passage right in front of what will happen now to me and to her, where he says, personally, if I could, I would instigate meat axe day and out of the goodness of my heart, I would whack your head off along with a couple of others. Every man should be allowed one day and a hatchet just to ease his heart. And in the side of that, I want, or an AR-15. This is like... Is he is he an NRA member? I think he's, I think this is, you know, now at the time, this probably, you know, was not a, that... This is a, a banal sentiment, you know, uh, a banal um, misanthropic sentiment. Seventy years later, in the era of mass shootings, this sentiment to me mm. feels like, you know, a red flag. We should <laughs> report him to the police so that he, he shouldn't be allowed to buy a firearm, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, every man should be allowed one day and a hatchet just to ease his heart. It's like, wow. 
<laughs> and go down Matthew is by far the probably the longest chapter in the book, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And this is the one where it has the final throwdown with Nora before she returns to America. Mm-hmm. Um, they get it all out with Jenny and Robin and the letters and and this is when the doctor, you know, fed up with all of the drama around Robin goes down and gets drunk and passes out. Is this also the section where he tells us a story about, uh, or is that in Watchmen? Where no, it's in no, it's in to go down Matthew Tiny O'Toole. Oh, I think I just saw that. Did you? Uh, did you yes, miss I that? I spoke to Tiny O'Toole because it was his turn, and I had tried everything else. Right. I got. I got. I read through that. I read through that chapter, and I went back and I read. I read through that section with Tiny O'Toole, and I read it twice. Because the f- at first I thought it kind of skipped, and then I, there was something towards the end of that that caught my attention. I went, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think it was something about then I put Tiny away or something like that. And I thought, let's go back and read that again. Went back to start and realized, mm-hmm. oh, he's in a church and he takes out his penis. He's talking to his penis. Oh, is that what he's saying? Yes, Tiny O'Toole is the name of the doc. Is it's the name that uh, that old Matthew's given Happy his penis? penis. And I said, this would be a fine world, Lord, if you could get everybody out of it. Great line. And there I was holding Tiny, bending over and crying, asking questions until I forgot and went on crying. And I put Tiny away then like a ruined bird and went out of the place and walked looking at the stars that were twinkling. And I said, have I been simple like an animal, God, or have I been thinking? Yeah. And I put Tiny away like that was when I went. Is this his penis? <laughs> and I definitely didn't get that. And, if and I went back and reread it. Would have made a note. And then I went and I looked in the lit charts notes, and yep, that's his penis. I was right. I Why got it right. Why does any... I spoke to Tiny O'Toole? Yeah. Is this a thing? Do people talk to their penises? Um. Yes. Don't it... look sheepish <laughs> with me. <laughs> okay. Uh, Wait, did you give him motivational talks or what? Sometimes you have to, yes. I mean, especially at my age. <laughs> it is, it's, I don't know what it's like for women, never having been a woman, but for dudes, we have a very ambivalent relationship with our penis. It is almost like a weird, separate, defiant other. Hmm. You know, when when we're teenagers, it it uh, it stands up on its own at inopportune times. It embarrasses us. When we get older, it just says, "Fuck it, I'm tired." <laughs> and and it's and you know. We we are told in a patriarchal society that we should have command over this thing. It is us, after all. And yet it's not us. Are you told that? Because we're also told that you have no control over it, and yet uh, you should still be running things. Yeah. Which is the the height of patriarchy. I have no self-control, and yet I should still be in charge. Right. I know. Yeah. This is this is this is why I this is why some people look at me funny when I say it, but it's like I I I, I say I will not ever 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 in my life date a conservative woman ever. 
Why do people look at you strange when you say that? Well, that because seems I, completely reasonable. Mostly because of the way I, where I live. Oh, well, that's just because they don't realize that you're a liberal, maybe. But, I mean, to say that I would date somebody who has similar values to me is pretty kind of a no-brainer. There's there's this kind of there's also this kind of thought that well you should give everybody a chance. No, you don't. No, you know? that's not a thing. James Come Carville, you know, James Carville's dating that is married to that one conservative pundit lady, and he's a liberal, and you know, you just, people have a thing. I was like, no, no, conservative women are too misandrist. They are the this idea. I always you think I think conservative women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the real man haters aren't feminists or liberal women. They're conservative women. Those are the real man haters. I don't know about that. Oh no. See, here's the here, shall okay. I've been dying to talk about just this. Not, just watch out. You're a man talking about how women feel. You're getting into you're getting into territory. Right. Real life territory. Now, that's not to say that that women, liberal or conservative or otherwise, don't have legitimate, serious complaints about men's behavior. Men are shitty. In no, a no, we get that. That's, that's, I got that, yes. Men and we are, we, we are shitty because we're allowed to be shitty. In a patriarchal society, we are, we are given the taught privilege and taught to be shitty. Mm-hmm. But liberal women, on the whole, tend to simply expect better from men. And when men don't live up to those expectations, they are rightfully and appropriately cast off. Right? I don't think we expect better. I think we have higher standards. Yes, you do have higher standards. And when the men I don't, not, I don't I don't necessarily expect better. It's it's that, you know, I have a bar and you either reach it or you don't. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And part of that is because you do not define yourself in relationship to a man. You are define mm-hmm. yourself independent of your relationship to any man. Mm-hmm. Conservative women, because of that conservatism, partly and also because it tends to be highly tied to religion, tend to define themselves in relationship to the men in their life. They are the helpmate, the servant, the, you know, the wife, the the spouse, the helper, the, all this stuff, right? And at the same time, they are taught, you know, that men should be in charge and they kind of have to take all of these, they have to do something with all of that emotion, that resentment that bubbles up when a man is put in charge by default, even though he doesn't deserve it. He's a horrible, shitty person, but he's going to be put in charge because in that conservative mindset, men are in charge, patriarchal, they're at the top, and women are sublimated in that system. And as, and those conservative women, they have in the back of their mind, even though they're trying to fit into this patriarchal hierarchy, they have in the back of their mind that they are just as good as that dude up there who gets to be childish and immature and still be in charge, right? And so the only way they can deal with that psychological disconnect, that... Um, dissonance? Yes, that cognitive dissonance is to, when they get around other women like them, to just bash the shit out of men. You've experienced this? This is the world that I grew up in. I grew up in Kansas among conservative, you know, religious women. And all I heard growing up from women who always deferred to men because 
it was a patriarchal society, and that was their job as women to defer to men who were in charge. All I heard from these women was, men are pigs. All they ever think about is sex. They're handsy. They don't have any respect. They're monsters. They're evil. They're incompetent, stupid. And in the back of my mind, sensitive little boy that I was, I'm sitting there thinking, I'm a guy. Does that mean I'm insensitive and monstrous and handsy and bad and evil and piggish and all I ever think about is sex? I was impressed that you cared about the cared about the opinion of women. I'm a sensitive guy. So that sounds crazy, creepy, but I'm also a highly sensitive guy. I hear shit all the time. And it and and when you're young, you don't know how to separate out that generalization from your individualness. No, of course. You know, and also being a straight white male, I'm also part of the patriarchy, right? So at five or 10 or, you know, in that young white, you know, patriarchal society, I don't have any idea how to defend against that hatred or reconcile that with the privilege I've been given by society. So I have to, so then I grow up believing that all of anything that I feel towards women is therefore monstrous. Mm -hmm. I will never go anywhere near a conservative woman ever a fucking again. <laughs> I would I would rather I would rather be a horrible person and have people disdain me for that than be in a situation where people defer to me even though I'm horrible and be unaware of my horribleness. I would rather just be, you know, an acknowledged monster than think I'm great and actually be a monster. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah, I, I just, I won't go anywhere near conservative women. How did we get on this after talking about a book about women in love with each other? How did we get on your version I don't know. of conservative women? I don't remember exactly, but it was something popped the up. The patriarchy. The patriarchy, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So go down Matthew and then dog scene and then I don't understand. So there was a passage that I said, this is where the doctor is revealing himself. Uh -huh. Look here, said the doctor. Do you know what has made me the greatest liar on the side of the moon? Telling my stories to people like you to take the mortal agony out of their guts and to stop them from rolling about and drawing up their feet and screaming with their eyes staring over the knuckles with misery, which they are trying to keep off, saying, say something, doctor, for the love of God, and me talking away like mad. Well, that and nothing else has made me the liar I am. Mm -hmm. So he basically says, I'm a liar because I'm a liar, or I'm a liar because people are asking me questions. But he's kind of referencing one I'm a liar. And two, I can't shut the fuck up. <laughs> right. This is, this is, this is insight right here. Right. Then there's a lot of mixing gender on the following page. Yeah. Yeah. When he gets drunk, he just kind of lets it all hang out. You have dressed the unknowable in the garments of the known. I think he says that to Nora, right? Which is his way of explaining to her why she's confused about Robin, I think, mm -hmm. if I'm remembering correctly. It's hard to tell because he's been talking for so long, I can't remember what she said. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because when I was looking him up and they said, they said he's transgender, they would have referred to him as an invert. 
and this is here. They actually refer to him. <laughs> and the pretty lad who was a girl, what but the prince, princess, and point lace, neither one and half the other, the painting on the fan. None of us suffers as much as we should or loves as much as we say. Mm -hmm. Also another great line. Mm -hmm. What are you looking at? Do we want to go through this again? Do we want to read this a second time and come back? Wasn't that our plan? Are you thinking that about was our, our boarding mission? That was our plan. The question is, do we want to, I mean, we have that option. It is our, our we do, we can make that call. Do we want to try and read it all in one go and come back and talk to it? See if we have anything different to say in two weeks? I'm open. I was aware that like I have a, I have a vacation, like I'm on, I'm on, um, I'm on uh, vacation. I'm just like, I actually have some like non, like I have some not work, work stuff, but uh -huh. things like a meeting and this and that. And I'm just like, oh, I'll be reading this during, I'll be reading this again during my vacation. Um, I will say just a note this before we get into this decision-making. Um, another thing that I found similar with Ulysses is this conception of love in these books that includes a lot of like deceit and cynicism. Mm -hmm. There's like the depiction of love in this book is not, there's like a lack of something anyway. There's, there's, a, there's a, there's a lack of sentiment and a lack of appeal. Right. It's definitely not appealing. That is true. But there's also a sense of like people are vulnerable because they're getting hurt, mm -hmm. but I don't get the impression there's a lack of intimacy. Right. Right. Um, like people are getting disappointed. People are being left. But there is there is a lack of intimacy. And I had the same reaction to Ulysses, mm -hmm. um, you know. Yeah. But Ulysses doesn't have the yeah, there for a minute I was thinking that maybe it had would have had something to do with you know the, the topic in the era, homosexual relationships in that era. But then again, you would think that we didn't have homosexual. What, what was going on in Ulysses didn't. This one does. Ulysses. Oh, yeah. Right. And my first thought was that, oh, the lack of intimacy you know has to do with the uh you know, the era, the, the fact that, that, you know, the, uh, the, the gay subculture was, was repressed. And so, you know, intimacy was a danger. And you're getting intimacy. I don't mean sex. Right, 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 okay. right. Intimacy was a danger. Having, having a close connection to someone close enough that it could be recognized publicly was a threat, was a danger, was mm -hmm. a risk. And Ulysses doesn't have homosexuality in it, so the, so but, so the uh, the lack of intimacy there was is simply you know an emotional one, maybe I don't know. But I don't get I don't get emotional intimacy here. You don't need to be in public to have emotional intimacy, right? right? But it does. Maybe. But it does have the potential to come out in public and therefore put them at risk. But I think that there were women who loved each other and were right. intimate. And whatever happened in public, I don't know. 
but I don't get the impression that these women have intimacy. Right. Right. Not, it's not like women didn't have intimacy before people were aware that women loved each other and it was oh, oh, quote unquote, okay. Or whatever. I, I don't get the impression these women have intimacy. Right. I get the impression that they are loving what they cannot have. Mm. Robin is, Robin is unattainable in the, Therefore, people become obsessed with her. It's not intimacy. Right. Right. I always have this. One of my one of my lines, my lines around relationships is you have to know the difference between passion and anxiety. And this is about anxiety. You're welcome. Tell me some more about that. No, because, you know, when someone is unattainable, we can, we can feel a lot of things and we'll, we'll, uh, uh, mistake that for being enthralled with the person that they are. So is it kind of like a, an act of projection or is it more of a, of a, of a blank slate type of situation where. Oh, I think, I, I think there's a thing where humans possibly as a way to avoid intimacy, maybe, um, want what they can't have. Right. You know, you don't want me, so you must be somehow good. Right. Right, right, right. I give value to that, which I can't get near. Which is related to the old Groucho Marx quote, you know, I would never be a member of any club that would have me as a member. Me as a member, (laughs) right? There's a difference between that and loving someone who is there and that you know is there. And I don't get the impression anybody in this book loves that way. Right. Like this isn't like, oh, I fell in love with someone. We fell in love and shit didn't work out. This is. I fell in I fell in love, quote unquote, with someone who was always fleeting, who was never mine, who was always unattainable. Right. Do we want to try round two, read it and talk about it again? Or do we just want to think, eh? Or do we want to hold off and maybe like not try to force ourselves to read it again, considering our our I don't know about you, but I was a little disappointed. I mean the fact that people have said they've read this multiple times means that when they got done with it the very first time they read it, they had a desire to reread it. And to tell you the truth, having read this once, my only desire to read it again would be to fulfill the obligation of the of the original plan of the podcast we had. Whereas I have, having gone through it once, I'm like going, eh. Something didn't connect enough for me to like want to do it again. Well, the other reason we were going to read it again is because it's under 200 pages, which is, you know, very different from the last home. We, you know, we're not going to be like, let's read Ulysses twice because, you know, we got jobs. But, and, and of course, all the, all the intro stuff said that this, you know, is one of those books that you have to read more than once to, you know, to get it. As, but at some point, you have to have found the desire to want to get it. And having read it once, I'm like, I don't get it, and I don't care. So I could see getting something else from it, having read it, like like knowing the landscape of it. Right. And right, I could get, 
I could I could see myself reading this a second time and having a, a, a different experience. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's particularly I, that likely is true of a lot of things. True. Um, true. So, yeah, we could do a thing where we read it again two months from now or something. Although I don't know, I might not remember enough of it at that time, and I may have lost the the effect of having read it twice if I wait. Or we just pick out a different book and do this again in a few months. Yeah, yeah. And I have and I have some suggestions about that. I mean, if we um, we could we could always do some uh, Amstead Maupin, Maupin, you know, if we wanted to stick with really? uh, with gay themed literature. But he's not a difficult read, is he? No, no, but he's definitely not, you know, straight white dudes. And he and, did t- Tales of the City, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking we would have gay and someone of color and okay. a different genre. Um, Samuel Delaney. Uh, oh. So he's science fiction. I think he's, I have problems with science fiction in general, I don't read it well. So having having a tutor, having accompaniment might be helpful. Okay. Um, but I also think he's he's I think so I think dog roll is his like one of his big ones. Okay. And I think you know, this is, you know, because he was at Naropa. Yeah, yeah. Um I think it's but I think it's actually quite long and I think it's a difficult read, I believe. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so what's our final verdict, I guess, on on Nightwood? Were we just not, you know, mentally ready for it, do you think? Or is it just not as not as good as Jeanette Winterson said it was? I mean, does it will it resonate so, with certain people more than Will it resonate with certain people more than it resonated with us? Probably. I mean the people I know who have read it. Right. Because after we decided, you know, some of my more literarily minded friends, I told them and they were just like, oh, yeah, it's like it's a great book. So why do they say that? Maybe we should maybe we should try and get them to tell us why they think it's a great book. Maybe instead of reading it again for the fourth show, we have them Mm -hmm. come and talk to us about it. Who 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 of them would be. uh, willing to jump in on here and, and give this a shot. Oh, I'm sure my friend Stacy would do it in a second. I don't know about Sarah, just in terms of time, but I think Stacy would do it. Maybe let's try that. It's funny because I talked to her about it today and what she said was, um, cause I told her what I told you, which was this sense of like, there is a, an emotional and moral world that I don't resonate with. And she said, what she said was she goes, she thinks that's um, like probably an accurate criticism mm-hmm. because at that time there was not a lot of emotional like pe- like that that would have I don't want to put words in her mouth, but that would have been indicative of like the people and the writing that was going on back then. Hmm. Yeah. See if she would uh, be willing to. We'll we'll keep we'll keep the, the next show on the schedule out there two weeks from now and find out if she'd be interested in, in jumping on and talking with us about it. But yeah, someone who loves the book, I'd like to have them try to explain that sounded 
I mean, I think that sounded she, aggressive. She I would like to have them try to explain. <laughs> that sounded I'm, like I'm texting her about it now. Horribly aggressive, and I don't mean it that way. I mean, I would like for someone who likes the book to explain to me what I am missing, to help me figure mm -hmm. out what I'm missing. <gasps> oh, okay. As opposed Sorry, to I'm segueing. As Go opposed ahead. to try to explain it to me, like yeah, they won't succeed. <laughs> So um, you and I are going to talk in two weeks, no matter what, and we'll record it and we'll, so that, so that we have four shows mm -hmm. regardless. If she's able to talk to us, great. If not, we'll at least have the one last one where we'll kind of have time to, you know, ponder it some more ourselves. I am happy I don't have to read it though, honestly, because I didn't want to have to do work during my vacation. And so oh, this I is understand. one last thing I have to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well let's let's wrap it up for uh, for Heather. Hi, Heather. <laughs> Bye, everybody. The Outrider Podcast is recorded by me, Jason Quinn Malott, and the sound editing and post production is performed by Heather Ann Eden. <laughs>